In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, so we, we didn't have a Bible study last week, um, but God willing, today we are going to continue studying um, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, so God willing, we are going to continue uh, with chapter um, is it six or seven that we're supposed to be today. Seven? Seven. Yes. So seven and eight. We can get to eight. So we'll see. So can somebody give me a summary of some of the main topics that St. Paul has been speaking about in the last couple of chapters that we've been studying? We have the issue with the man who makes sin with the suffering. Okay. How they cast him out of the church. Okay, so the man who had sinned and, and was excommunicated and came back, and how St. Paul had asked the people to accept him back again. Okay, good. About how uh, St. Paul said that his joy is found within, within the church of Corinth. Right, so St. Paul said that the people are his joy, and he wants that 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 he would be their joy. Like he wants them to accept him and show him love the way that he shows them love and the way he accepts them and he's joyful for them. Okay, good. Pretty much it, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, no, that's good. Those are all important points. Um, also, he emphasized a lot the idea that he didn't want to bring sorrow to um, the, the people by his message. And that if he did produce any kind of sorrow in them through a message of rebuke, um, it was for their ultimate salvation. It was for their ultimate joy. Um, and it was a, a godly sorrow rather than a worldly sorrow. Okay. Um, those are just some of the points. I mean, he continues to speak um, about the spiritual ministry, about his relationship with them, how he, he, they, he wants them to, um, you know, I, I, I see him as, an authentic apostle and that his message is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And as we said, all the times that we hear him defending himself and speaking about his ministry and talking about the hardships he's experienced in his ministry, it's not because he wants sympathy. It's not because he wants them to make, make them feel bad about themselves or anything like that. It's simply because he wants them to, to realize and see that his message is the message of salvation that is coming from God to them and they identify him as an apostle, as a messenger of God, right? Because this message is important for them to hear. So here, this first verse, it like ties into the previous verse from chapter six, where he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this is referring to which promise? The promise in, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, which said, I will be a father to you. This is God speaking. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, right? So St. Paul is saying, because we have this promise that the Lord has said that he is our father and that we are his children, let us respond, right? This is why we say that. All of the work of a Christian is in response to the, the work and the love of God. Who is the one who took the first initiative? It's God. It's always God. God is always the one who makes the first step. Who is the one who decided to create? It was God, obviously. It wasn't us. 
Who is the one who decided to reach out to us when we were living in darkness and sin? It was God. Who is the one who decided to incarnate for our salvation? It was God. Who is the one who decided to send the prophecies, the prophets? It was God, right? The one who, to establish the church, God is the one who established the church. Everything is, starts with God, and then we are called to respond, okay? And God tells us how we should respond. In what way is the appropriate right way for us to respond? And here he is saying what our response to God should be as a response of sons and daughters who love their father. And this is no small thing, you know. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, the people did not see God as a father necessarily, right? They saw him as God. They saw him as almighty. They saw him as powerful. They saw him as a judge. They saw him as creator, right? They saw him as master, but to, to be considered among the children of God, actually, who is the children of God? You know, oftentimes we use this term like loosely. We say, oh, we are the children of God. Well, who is the children of God? Who specifically are the children of God now? It is a question. It is a question because it starts with the word who. Died and with those who died and resurrected with Christ in baptism. This is actually what the scripture says. It says that for us to become adopted sons and daughters of God through the waters of baptism. So it is not right, actually, when we say all of the all of the world, all of the people, these are we are like the sons and daughters of God. No, actually, it's not. Those whom have been crucified with Christ in baptism and resurrected again, we are the ones that can actually refer to God as Father. This is what the Bible teaches, right? It doesn't mean that we are looking down on the others. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't have love for the others that are not. No, actually, we want them to also come and be sons and daughters of God, right? But this says something about the how priceless and valuable the blood of Christ is to open for us the doors of salvation, to open for us the sacraments so that we can actually come and partake of the sacraments and see that God is truly a father. So because the father shows us great love and this love is manifested by his sacrifice to us, we seeing the love of the father should respond in the same love, right? Just as the Lord sacrifices for us and he gave of what was his to give to us, and he, he allowed himself to suffer for us, right? We see his love, his great love, just to meditate on his great love should create in us a love for him, just like anyone. You see, you see someone, maybe someone who's a total stranger to you, okay? Let's say you get a flat tire, your cell phone isn't working, you're out of battery, you can't call anyone for help, and some good Samaritan person decides they're going to stop, they're going to get out of their car, and they're going to help you in whatever way. Right? You've never met them before. You don't know anything about them. You don't even know their name. But just because they decided to sacrifice of their time, of their effort, to come and to help you, you have like a warm feeling toward them. You know, like you have a kind, good feeling. And actually, it makes you what? It, might, it makes you want to be able to repay. It makes you be able to, like, I want to repay this good Samaritan for what they did to me. Tell me, how can I help you? And if you happen to find at some point later in your life that this person is in need, Maybe we would be very keen and 
you know, attentive to going out of our way to serve them the way that they served us, right? So when we meditate on the sacrifice that God made in order for him to truly be a father and for us to be sons and daughters, right? It should, it should create in us a sense of indebtedness. Now it is a debt we can never pay. It is a debt beyond payment. Like we, when we read the, the parable of um, the wicked servant, right? In that parable that you have a servant who owes 10,000 talents to the king, to his master, and that he can never repay that debt. And so the master cancels his debt, right? That 10,000 talent debt represents the debt of salvation. There is no amount of, of, of payment that we could ever pay the father to repay him for what he has done, which is why we should feel always a sense of indebtedness, always a sense of indebtedness that I am going through my life not entitled. I'm not, I, know, I don't feel entitled to anything. I don't feel entitled that God must give me X, Y, Z. Actually, God has already given 10 billion times X, Y, Z. Whatever happens to be X, Y, Z in, in, my, in that moment. You know, we go through our life saying, well, God, can you give me this job? Can you give me this spouse? Can you give me this money? Can you give me this and this? Like all the desires of our heart. And a lot of times God doesn't give, right? And, and unfortunately, we respond um, sometimes with anger, with disappointment, with resentment, with feelings of bitterness, maybe, right? But look at what God already gave. Like, don't look at the things that may or may not be good for us. Let's look at the things that are 100% definitely good for us that God already gave without any, without any possibility of us losing it. Never, never to lose the salvation that he gave, the price that he paid for our salvation, the eternity in heaven with him. This is already done. He already gave it. We are just waiting for the day where we will enjoy it to its fullest, right? But it is already given. It's like God has already taken, you know, all of the trillions of dollars and he has already put in our bank account. And he said, on this specific day, you will have access to this wealth, right? It's already given, right? So if this person who has given me these trillions of dollars, right? And then I ask him for, can you buy me a $10 sandwich over here? And he says, no, I'm not going to get you the sandwich. Are we going to feel upset with him because he didn't get us the sandwich? He already gave me $10 trillion. Like, like we, are, it's, it, we have to put things into perspective, right? We have to put things into perspective. The one who gave us the infinite, right? Maybe says no to the finite. That should not create in me any anger or resentment. Says, well, okay, you know better than me. You already gave me the infinite because you, you are infinite. So what then is our response here, right? What then is our response? St. Paul is saying, because we have received these promises, the promise that, that, that God is our father and that we are his children, what is our response? In what way do we show love to this father who has shown love to us? In what means do we show him love? How do you show love to a God who is spirit and who is invisible? Do you go climb up a tall ladder in heaven and you give him a big hug? Is that showing him love? That's not possible, right? That's not, that's not, obviously, that's not the way that we show love to God. Here he focuses on what? What is, what is what he focuses on here? What is that we are called to do in response to the promise that we have received from God? Cleanse. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, okay? So our response is to purify ourselves. Why? Why does God care so much 
about our purification. Okay, we are made as an image, yes. And? Okay, yes, all of those are correct, right? Like, what does a father want the most? Yes, the best for his children, and to be with his children. Right? The, the thing the father wants the most is to be with his children. But God is perfect. You know, God is without blemish. He, he can be with us in union and oneness when we are as, as he is. When we are um, uh, pure as he is pure. Okay? That's how we can be in oneness with him. Right? Like you said, theosis, right? You can only have theosis, right? The unity with God, the oneness with God, the being like God when we are pure, right? Without sin, because sin was the barrier that actually separated us from God to begin with. So for God to truly be a father to us, for God to truly be among us, with us, in us, then we have to purify ourselves, right? Then we have to have purity of heart, purify, cleanse ourselves from filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And here it speaks about these two kinds of, of purification, right? It speaks about the two kinds of filthiness, the flesh and the spirit. The filthiness of the flesh are the things like um, lusting, gossiping, gluttony, hatred, like these types of vices are considered like the, the, the filthiness of the flesh. The filthiness of the spirit touches more on the spiritual things. Like for instance, those who would like worship idols, right? This is a filthiness of the spirit. Instead of worshiping God and spirit and truth, we are worshiping something else. And that worship can be like, you know, in those days, obviously worshiping idols like pagan practices, or it could be um, worshiping, you know, money, right? It could be, it could be making something else in my life, the most important thing other than God. Essentially taking something else and saying, this is the father. Right? This is exactly the sin of the Israelites when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And Aaron forged for the people right, a golden calf. And what did he say to the people when he made the golden calf? This is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, pointing to the calf, this golden calf. This is the God. right? So we are taking this, the, the, who God is, the characteristic and the qualities of God, and we are attributing it to something created, to something else, right? The filthiness of the spirit. So this then should be what we strive for in our life. We are striving for purity and cleansing, but not for the sake of purity, for the sake of oneness with God. The goal is oneness with God. The goal is not purity. The goal is not simply to be cleansed. He's saying, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. You can have people who are not Christians that are very moral people, very righteous people, very good people, very kind people, very giving people, charitable people, every good quality you can have, like as a Christian morality perspective, you can have that in someone who is a non-Christian because they choose to live life that way because they're good people, okay? The point here is not just that we are moral people. Christians are, Christianity is not just morality. Christianity and morality are not the same thing. So I'm saying as Christians, our job is to be moral, good people living in the world, doing good to one another. That is not Christianity. That is one of the byproducts of Christianity. That's one of the things, a part of Christianity, right? But the reason why we become this, the reason why we, 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 we um, desire to be this 
is because we want oneness with God, right? So to, 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 to have oneness with God, we have to live a certain way. In response to the love that God showed us, we show him love by um, struggling to become this. Of course, helped by God, right? Aided by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is not that it is up to us completely by ourselves to attain this. God works to cleanse, but we have to accept his working. So then he goes on and he says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Okay. St. Paul wants them to achieve this unity with God. Okay. And in order for them to achieve this unity with God, in order for them to realize these promises that they are the sons and daughters of God, they would have to accept his message and the message of the other apostles. This is what the church is. The church comes into the world. The church comes as a beacon of light in the midst of the darkness of the world and tells everyone, this is the problem. Here is the problem that we have in the world and here is the solution. And the solution isn't always a popular solution, obviously, right? A lot of people reject the solution of the church. A lot of people come and they, they reject the message of salvation, uh, that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation and only way to the Father, okay? But this is what St. Paul came. And he's saying, accept my words. Open your hearts to us, right? Because the words that we are speaking to you are wisdom. The words we are speaking to you are salvation. The words we are speaking to you are truly the words of life. And if you want to have unity with the Father, this is the only means of unity, right? If you want to truly live to the fullest, if you truly want to feel a sense of purpose and, and understand who you are as a person, then open your hearts to us. Accept the words of salvation that we give to you. Because Christianity is not just about what do you believe, right? It's not just what certain sets of beliefs and facts do you believe are true. It is a means of restoring humanity to its original state. We are broken. We are broken. And anything that's broken cannot function correctly. It's not working correctly. And it's like, like, think of it like a machine, right? A machine that's broken. It's going to have gears and stuff grinding inside. And, it's, and, 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 and the more it's broken, the more it's like getting even more broken. As it's trying to function while it's broken, it's getting more, more worn. It's getting more broken. It's getting more tired. It's, it's, it's on the verge of breaking, right? This is a good picture of the world today, right? It is the world that is trying to function um, but the more it functions, the more it's dysfunctioning, the more it's breaking, the more it's falling apart, the more it's not able to, to meet the potential, right? So God give, tells us, this is what humanity is supposed to be, okay? You, you, you have a certain um, standard of life. You have a certain uh, means, way of existence that as human beings we're supposed to have. Like, for instance, we're supposed to have fulfillment, how did God create Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Did he create them with a sense of, you know, they're lacking anything? Were they lacking anything in the garden? Every need that they had was met. Their physical needs were met. Their emotional needs were met. Their relational needs were met. Their spiritual needs were met. Every type of need that any human being has was completely provided for in the Garden of Eden. This is what God made. And since sin entered in the world and everything broke and humanity broke and every human being broke, Okay, now here he's saying what? We want to restore you again. We want you to be restored to, to the fullness of what humanity is. Human, human. I mean, oftentimes we use the term human to mean like a weak, sinful person, right? Because that's what we're kind of like, you say, well, I'm only human. 
But that's not really correct. Because what is the original intention of humanity? Humanity was created in, 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 in perfection. That is, the, that is the original human design, right? Is, is fullness, it's not brokenness, right? It's wholeness. So, so here he's saying, I want you to become human again. I want you to restore your, your humanity again. And the only way for us as weak human beings to be restored in our humanity is to be touched by God. It's for God to come into, the, into our life and to heal what is broken. So he's saying, open your hearts to us, right? He's saying, we have this message. Again, he's defending himself. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Everywhere we go, we are preaching these words of salvation. Now, like many of the preachers and the prophets, um, you know, a lot of people rejected their message. You know, and they accused the apostles of maybe preaching for selfish ambition, or they said, you know what, we don't believe the message that you are bringing, or we don't like this message, right? Because it is a message that is uh, saying, you know, it's putting limitations, it's putting restrictions, it's saying, you know what, well, what if I don't want to live in a purified way? What if I want to live for my own selfish enjoyment and pleasure, right? But here St. Paul is giving them this formula. He's telling them, if you want to be, have the fullness of life, if you want to have the fullness of enjoyment and joy and peace and consolation, then you must be united with God. You must see that God is your father and that you are his sons and daughters. And so for that reason, just as he said here in verse one, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. This is why this is so such a critical thing. Again, it's not about just morality. It's not just about let's live as good Christians. Let's live as people who are moral people making good choices and serving the poor. No. It is about union with God. And it's about reaching the fullness of what God created us to be um, from the very beginning. So then he says, I do not say this to condemn. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Okay. He's not, he's not coming to them saying you are a bunch of bad people and, you know, I'm condemning you for, for the way you're living. Okay. No. But he's giving them this message of um, encouragement, right? And he's saying, I'm coming to sacrifice myself for you. I'm teaching you the truth about God, right? But there are others who are teaching falsehood, okay? And this is a very critical point that we are in very, like right now in our day-to-day, -day, um, struggling with this so much in the world. That for every message of goodness and righteousness and truth, there is the opposite message of falsehood and darkness and deception, right? And St. Paul wants them to be able to discern, okay? He's, he's not coming to tell them this because they're just, you know, they're awful people and they're doing everything wrong. No, he says, I, I, want, I want you to discern the truth. I want you to understand the truth. That there is this truth that I'm teaching and there is another message of deception that is being taught by others, whether those others are false prophets, whether those others are just the world system that we are living in, that message of deception. And, and we are living in this era of deception. We are living in an era where deceptive messages are creeping in, not only to um, you know, the minds of the secular world or the atheistic world or the materialistic world, but even into the minds of those in the church, right? That, that have been deceived in believing these worldly messages that are against God's commandment, that are against this path of salvation, that are against this goal of being made whole again, right? And they're believing these deceptive messages, and that is keeping them in darkness and keeping them from fulfilling this um, 
this promise that God has said that he will be our father and that we will be his children because they are choosing to live in a path and a philosophy and a lifestyle that is contrary to him, right? And so for that reason, they remain in darkness. They do not grow. They do not grow, grow closer to him. So then he says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Okay. So as he's mentioned before, St. Paul is, is taking pride in them. He loves them with this genuine love, and he is joyful for, for talking to them, for seeing them. He's joyful at seeing their progress. He's boasting about them. like He's proud of the Corinthian church, right? And he wants them to succeed, and they are a constant source of joy for him, despite all the sufferings that he faces in his ministry for them, right? Like, he is not living an easy life, and he is sacrificing everything about his life for their sake. He's sacrificing his freedom, he's sacrificing his comfort, he's sacrificing his money, he's sacrificing his, you know, every, everything. Like St. Paul could have had a completely different life. He sacrifices it all for them. He sacrificed even more, like when he was speaking about, like, um, the other apostles, for instance. He said some of the other apostles, well, they took wives, right? And he's speaking about himself, like, I, I did not take a wife, right? And I didn't take a wife, not because having a wife is wrong, not because it's wrong for an apostle to be married, He's saying, I did it because I wanted no distraction. I did it because I wanted nothing to keep me from being able to fulfill my mission to you, to preach to you, to serve you. So he is, he, he, he is completely, 100% immersed in the service. His whole life is to serve these people. His whole life. He has nothing else to live for but to serve these people, to fulfill God's mission that God has called him for. And so when he sees them, on the right track, moving in the right direction, doing the right thing, living a life of repentance, pursuing their salvation, that makes him joyful, that makes him happy. He is happy and joyful that he is fulfilling his mission and that he sees his children are growing and benefiting, right? But when, when his children are not, he doesn't just take it lightly and say, oh, you know, I did, I did my job, I did what I'm supposed to do, you know, and that's all too bad for them. No, he, 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 he weeps. He is torn, he is broken because his children who are perishing, right? It reminds me of the famous story for um, Father Bishoy Camel, you know the story of Father Bishoy Camel, who um, uh, there was a person who was living a life of sin and decided that they were going to leave the church, I think. I don't remember if it was to leave the church or to, to, to marry outside the church or something, but they were, they were going in, in a really bad path. And so they got in the car, and the car started to drive away. But I wouldn't have shown what did he do? He grabbed a hold onto the bumper of the car and the car started to drag him, right? As the car was driving away and he refused to allow this person to leave. And after this person saw like the love of, of, of a bun of shoy camel for them, they told the car to stop and they came out and they repented and they changed. Only from what, from seeing like the, the spirit, the love that he had for them, you know? I imagine myself like in a situation like that, you know, like someone is, is going to leave the church, they're going to go, maybe I would say, well, it's your decision, I, I gave you every opportunity, I told you what was right, in the end you choose, right, like we're, we're the nation of freedom, everything is about your freedom, choose, but that's not what he did, like his heart was so convicted him, that, that, and because of that, he was able to turn the heart of this person who otherwise was going astray. And this is St. Paul. This is the sacrifice that St. Paul makes for the sake of his people. 
For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. St. Paul had left Ephesus, um, and then he went to Troas and ultimately to Macedonia, which is where he wrote this epistle, okay? Um, and there were many persecutions and there were many false teachers that were harassing him. Um, and there was also uncertainty about the, the status of the Corinthians. Like, like he, had, he had seen from his first epistle, when he wrote his first epistle, there was a lot of conflicts, a lot of problems, a lot of divisions, a lot of more immorality. And if you remember when we studied the first Corinthians, it was full of rebukes, right? And so St. Paul, like not only was he being attacked from other uh, false teachers, but he was also worried, right? When he said inside were fears, he was also worried about the status of the Corinthians, you know, and, and uh, that they're going astray. And he doesn't, he feels sad for them. He feels afraid and worried about them. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he speaks about this verse. He says, wars on the outside against the unbelievers and fears on the inside for the weak among the believers, lest they would probably be lost. That was not confined to the Corinthians alone, but extended to other places as well. You know, the Corinthians is not the only church that St. Paul had founded and established and was worried about. You know, he wrote 14 epistles in the New Testament and he established churches all over the world. So his mind is like always thinking about others, you know, all these places, all these churches that he established. Um, and so he was worried about them. And there was a time where he was waiting for Titus to come and, and to report on the Corinthians news, right? He, he knew Titus had gone to the Corinthians. He was waiting for Titus to return so that he could tell him, uh, Titus could tell St. Paul what was happening with the Corinthians and Titus was delayed. So he was also worried waiting for him. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So ultimately Titus, even though he was delayed, ultimately Titus came and he told St. Paul a very good report about the Corinthians. And he told them that, that a lot of the things that, you know, that they were suffering from, a lot of the sins they had committed, a lot of the conflicts that they had, had improved, right? And so he gave this good report. And so it made St. Paul joyful. Right to hear this, um, to hear this report, and he was also uh, joyful to hear about the repentance of that one person who had been excommunicated um, and was restored again to the church. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, uh, though only for a while. Which which letter is he talking about? The first epistle, right? The first epistle to the Corinthians. What does this reveal here about St. Paul? This verse. He's remorseful. Why is he remorseful? He didn't want to rebuke them, but he felt that it was necessary. So it tells you something about someone who operates out of love versus out of anger. Right? Someone who operates out of anger is focusing more on themselves. You know, like, let's say you have a parent who has told their child 50 times, don't do X, you know? And after 51 times, 
they can't take it anymore and they just explode and lose their temper. Okay. Typically, what's going on in the mind of that person is I feel uh, disrespected. I feel you're disobeying me. I feel like um, you don't appreciate me. I feel this, I feel this, I feel this. Usually when a person who is in a position of authority, like a shepherd or a parent or, you know, when they react this way out of purely like anger, it's oftentimes self, like, like, this, like it's, it's focused on me, it's about me. Whereas when someone is thinking more about the people, his focus is, is on the sadness of causing, of, of seeing them go astray and the sadness of hurting them by his rebuke. Like St. Paul here is very gentle with them. He's saying, you know what, even though you deserve this rebuke, even though this rebuke actually helped you and was necessary for you, but I was hesitant to give it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to harm you. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't want to push you away. I didn't want you to, to take what I said and let this be a source of you becoming angry and not benefiting from the words. Because it's always like, when we give rebuke, we have to do it with a balance, right? Like we, we have to see what, what amount of, what response to this person who is maybe going astray is the appropriate one. Should it just be patience and waiting? Should I say something at all? And if I say something, how, should I say something every single time? Should I let it go sometimes? Uh, if I say something, how harsh should I be? You know, should I be very direct and harsh? Should I be kind of more indirect? Uh, and, and if I am direct, like, should I give a punishment? Um, what kind of punishment should I give? It's, it's very difficult, you know, and someone who is in a position like this to give the right consequence or the right kind of rebuke that would be beneficial for his children. And as you can see here, kind of a window into his heart where he's saying, even though I'm the apostle, this, this man was taken into heaven and he saw visions of heaven, okay? This man spoke with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like this isn't just anybody. And even he is struggling with what is the appropriate response of rebuke for these people. And he had such a tender heart toward them. He didn't come down on them. He's like, do you know who I am? Like, like this, is, this is inappropriate and wrong what you're doing. And I can't even, like, I, I won't even stand for that. Actually, it's another reason sometimes parents become angry at their children is not because they... They, they just want their children to improve is because their, their children embarrass them in front of the other parents. So like you can imagine, you know, St. Paul, like the other apostles are all having a meeting together. It's like, so how are your churches doing? So how are your churches doing? And, and you know, some of the other apostles be like, so I heard your churches are, you know, not doing too good. <laughs> you know, like, like almost like, like, of course, this is a silly example, but you can think of a lot of wrong motives for someone to want to rebuke someone. Here, all that St. Paul cares about is, um, is gently restoring his people back again in whatever form that takes, right? So he says what? I did regret it. I regret it at the time. I gave you the, the rebuke at the time, and I regretted what I said, not because it was wrong, but I, I looked back at it and I said, maybe this was too harsh. Maybe this isn't going to have the right effect. Maybe it was going to push you away. But now, having seen like the result, the consequence of what happened, of how positively they responded to his rebuke, what? He says, what? I do not regret it. I do not regret it. Like, I, I had to wait, like, in kind of like, in the midst of my doubt, 
about whether it was the right thing to do. But in the end, God showed me that it was the right thing to do. So again, like typically when any parent or any person in authority gives a rebuke, there should be that tinge of doubt, right? If there's no tinge of doubt at all, then likely we are being too harsh. There should always be that, that little, like we're afraid. We're afraid to push too hard unless we squash something that otherwise like is, is okay. I mean, we don't want to squash it. Like if you rebuke too hard, then the person really doesn't have, like they, they might leave altogether. They might not like respond positively again. But if you still have them, you're still functioning with them, still talking, to them, even though they fail many times, but at least they have another opportunity. They have another chance. But if you push too hard, you push them away and you might not have that change again. So you see here, St. Paul is like struggling with this, this fact. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death, okay? There is a very big distinction between this godly sorrow and the, the sorrow of the world. Very big difference between these two types of sorrow. Okay. The godly sorrow, number one, is according to God's principles, meaning I am sorrowing um, because of something that sorrows God. Right? Godly sorrow means that I sorrow when God is sorrowful and I rejoice when God rejoices meaning that my will and God's will are aligned. This is, the, this is a godly sorrow. So if there is something that God hates, I also hate that thing, right? And if there's something that God loves, I also love that thing. That is me being like aligned with God. Godly sorrow is about a very specific concrete thing. You know, like if I go to confession and I have a godly sorrow that I'm sorrowful for my sins, I can point out the sins I committed and I say, I am sorrowful and I regret committing these sins, A, B, C. Okay. The, the, the ungodly sorrow is general, right? The ungodly sorrow is I'm just a bad person. I just, I just hate myself. I'm, I'm, I'm no good at anything. And I, and I fall into despair because I feel like I can never do good. That's actually not godly sorrow. Like people think like this is a spirit of repentance, but it, it's actually not. God does not want us to fall into depression, right? Depression is not a means of salvation. Depression is not a path of repentance. Depression actually keeps us from repentance. Depression makes me paralyzed, makes me shut down, makes me not able to function. It makes me not able to have even hope that I could ever change. That's not repentance. Like, Repentance is a turning around, like when we say metanoia or matamia, it's a U-turn, right? The only way someone can U-turn is if they're still mobile, they're still functioning. If I completely collapse because of sadness and depression and despair, right, because of a sin that I committed, there's no way for me to turn, right? There's no way for me to go back, right? That is not God. And so the devil tricks us into thinking that this is actually the right type of sorrow that we have. It's not, this is not the right sorrow. The godly sorrow is specific, specific about specific sins. This specific action, this specific thought, this specific word, this specific thing is wrong. And I can repent of this specific thing. 
But to just kind of categorize and label myself in general as like, okay, everything I do is sinful and I can never get better and all that, that, that is not godly sorrow. Also, godly sorrow is limited in time. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that it doesn't last forever, right? Because we believe in confession that our sins are erased. We believe in confession that my sins are forgiven. So if my sins are forgiven, and as the Lord says that he will remember our sins no more, why would we continue to sorrow about a sin that I committed that the Lord has forgotten? Right? Are we more righteous than the Lord? Are we more holy than him that he forgives us sin and forgets about it, and yet we continue to remember it? And we continue to beat ourselves up about it for the rest of our lives even? For a sin that God has forgotten, do we not believe that God has forgotten? Do we not believe that the Lord has forgotten our sin? As he said, I will remember your sin no more. This is what he said, I will remember your sin no more. So how is it then that we remember, right? And we believe ourselves to be righteous when we do this. It's like, oh, when I beat my chest, you know, I'm such a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner. We're, we are sinners because we always sin. Okay. But it's not, I'm not, a, I'm not a sinner because of that one sin that I already repented of. 10 years ago that I can't like, you know, I already repented. The Lord has forgiven me. So this sorrow that I feel about it isn't a godly sorrow, right? It's a worldly sorrow. Yes. Is it a sin in itself to, to constantly think about a sin that you repented? This despair, if it leads us to despair, despair is a sin. Yeah, because ultimately, as, as Christians, we believe that the Lord has conquered the world, that he has conquered our own sinful nature, that he has opened the doors of heaven for us. Okay, if I believe that my sin, even though I repented of it, it's still, it's like, it's like, it's like my sin is more powerful than God. It's like saying my sin that I committed is so, so bad that even God cannot forgive that this sin is going gonna, is gonna to bring me condemnation no matter how much I repent of it, no matter how much I confess it, no matter what I do, this sin is going to bring me condemnation. So it is a type of idolatry, right? In the sense that I am, I am saying that, that God's power is insufficient. I'm minimizing God. I'm saying God's power is insufficient to forgive this. Okay. Jeff, yes. So... What about like if we're not necessarily reminding ourselves about the sin, but things around us are constantly reminding us about the sin, whether it's maybe a financial status or uh, relationships that we had, uh, people that are hurt, things like this. Like how, how do we, because at the end of the day, I mean, you're, you're going to feel bad, right? So what is that within itself? So this is not to say that when we remember something bad that we did, and especially when it has negative consequences that we're still living with, it doesn't mean that we think about it and we're like, eh, like, like it has no impact. Okay. We can, we can think of something that we've done bad and we can regret it. Okay. But there's a difference between regretting a decision I made, regretting an action that I did versus living in despair because of it and believing that I cannot be forgiven because of it and believing that I can never change, you know, because of that. Like, yes, I mean, unfortunately, we, when we make poor decisions, we, we have to live with those consequences oftentimes. But, but I can still have hope that God is perfecting me, 
that God is leading me to salvation, that God loves me, that God has not finished working with me, that I still have a bright future ahead of me, that I should not be afraid for my salvation because of something that has happened in the past that I've repented of, even if I have to deal with negative consequences, you know? So, so I'm not trying to say that it's just, there's not going to be any negative emotions associated with that sin. What I am trying to say is that those emotions should not lead me to believe that I've, I've lost my salvation or I don't have another chance, okay? Because the devil will make us feel that way, and then he will trick us into believing that that is actually godly sorrow. But that's actually the way we're supposed to feel, right? You know, any, any one of us who has ever had the experience that I, I, I maybe I'm committed a sin, I'm nervous about confessing it. I go in and confess the sin. And then after I'm done confessing it, I don't really feel forgiven. I feel like it's still on my on my heart. You know, that is a feeling that we have to push push back against. We have to fight against that. Yes. Um, so I was uh, I'm kind of confused about like the the definition of sin because like I've I've heard a lot of talks about it and uh, a lot of either priests or people that that uh, give talks say that. Sin is overall separation from God, and um, like, does that mean like any anything that's worldly that doesn't entail God that we do is sin? Um, it's not to say that necessarily anything worldly is sin, right? But anything that takes us away from God is sin. Anything against God's commandment is sin. And actually, the Bible says that whenever we know to do good and we do not do it, it is also sin. Right. So we are sinning all, all the time. I mean, we fall short of the glory of God all the time. I mean, imagine it this way. If the Lord Christ were here and we were watching him go about a day of his life. OK. And then we look at all the ways and all the things that he did that's different from what we did. And the way that he spends his time versus how we spend our time. Like that is a deviation from. What, what like the way the way that God would live like in the world like compared to us like we struggle with laziness we tr we struggle with selfishness we struggle with you know ignorance we struggle with you know even in our own minds like all the time so yes we are, we don't commit many sins in a day like I'm some people you know like they, they have this mindset that it's like the only sins we commit is like if somebody murders someone or or you know like steals robs a bank or big things and big obvious things like that are considered sin. But no, there are many very small, subtle things even in our mind that we sin, which is why we should be examining ourselves against God's commandment and say, what is it that today I have fallen short on? And then ask for God's forgiveness in those things, right? But not become so obsessed with the idea that um, I can't forgive myself because I didn't live up to the standard that God has set because obviously, it's a standard of perfection and that we grow through the work of the Holy Spirit in us to attain that, right? It is not just that God says, okay, it's up to you to try really hard and live like this. No, it is a, it is a process of transformation that happens over time through the work of the Holy Spirit in us to become more Christ-like, right? So, so hand in hand with the idea of I feel this godly sorrow and I repent, it is asking God to help to heal me, to help keep me from falling into these sins again, and to change me so that these sins are not as attractive to me, or not I'm not as like I'm not as liable to fall into them again. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'm just 
since uh, since this is like not a recurring thing, uh, kind of like a loop in our lives. Um, uh, masochism is like more like it's very prevalent. I feel like I, I felt that in my own life personally as well. So like how how can we uh like straight from that I guess like how can we uh not do things for the sake of doing things? Does that make sense? Because like it's just a loop. Like we always sin. Like it's it's it feels kind of like inescapable in a way. So like we just kind of go through the motions at some point. So how can we um. Yes. You're asking how is it that we don't get stuck into a cycle where we we stop trying? Yeah. Because we know that no matter what how much we try, we will always be sinners. No, not that. It's just that like more and more so like that genuinity feels like it, it, it feels like there's no genuinity anymore. It's mm -hmm. more like I'm just going to confession just because I did this. I'm going to communion because I have to do this so I can go to heaven. So it, it, it would no, I understand. Thank you. So we shouldn't like we shouldn't confuse the repetition of sin with insincerity, right? Just because like when you have a weak, like, let me give you an example. Like let's say you have a wound, okay? You have a wound here on your arm, and that wound takes a very, very long time to heal. So every time somebody touches that wound, you're gonna feel pain. You're gonna feel weakness there every single time, every day. If somebody touches it a hundred times, you're going to feel pain a hundred times. If you have that pain for five years, every single time somebody touches that wound, you're going to feel the same pain that many times. So just because you you feel the pain, you feel the weakness, this reveals something about ourselves. It reveals something about me. I have a weakness here. The fact that I have a weakness here doesn't mean, and, and the, the fact that I keep falling into the same sin, the same weakness, doesn't mean that I'm not sincere and wanting to overcome. Doesn't mean that I look at that wound like, yeah, I'm fine with that wound. Oh, I'm not fine with the wound, but I have to at the same time realize that it's real, it's there. So we have to acknowledge that we have real weaknesses. And sometimes those weaknesses, even though we might make progress on them in our life, there are weaknesses that we will have for the rest of our lives. There are personality flaws, their personality traits, their weaknesses, whether they are something that we were born with certain weaknesses in certain areas or whether things we learn through our environment, that even if we struggle and we struggle and we struggle, we will struggle with them so much. And yes, we can make improvement, but not necessarily that all those are going to be lifted. I mean, obviously, by the end of our lives, we will still be committing sin. So just because that is the case, it doesn't mean that we are insincere, right? Because we are still examining ourselves, we are still going to confession and, and confessing the sins that we identify, right? And we're still, like, trying to see what we can do to help overcome the sin, even if the sin is repeated, right? So this is another trick. Like in the verse in Proverbs that says, a righteous man falls seven times a day, but rises again, right? So who is it that God sees as righteous, right? It is the man who falls seven times a day, he is still considered righteous by God because he got up seven times again. So we should be careful not to, um, you know, to take for granted the grace of God and say, well, because I know that God is forgiving and he will forgive me any sin that I confess, that this gives me like somehow a license to sin, right? That's when it's, it's wrong. When I say, okay, you know what? Um, I know that God is going to forgive me, so I'm not going to try. I'm not going to make any effort. I'm, I'm, and I'm and I'm not going to try to change. That's that's wrong. But falling into a sin again and again and again, this is actually very normal. 
that we struggle with that until we can improve. sorrow 
results in a positive change. But the worldly sorrow results in a negative change. Right? The godly sorrow always will result in something positive. Because if I have truly godly sorrow, then when I identify something that is wrong with me, something that I've done wrong, a wrong thought pattern, a wrong pattern of, of, of life, something is wrong about me, then yes, it causes me sorrow, it causes me pain, it causes me to be disturbed, and it, it causes me to be frustrated, it causes me to feel like, okay, like what you're asking me that I have to change this, it's not a comfortable process, okay, but it will result in something good, meaning I will distance myself from a certain group, I will distance myself from a certain bad habit. I will change my lifestyle in a certain way. I will start to try to change my thought patterns in a positive way. I will start confessing more. I will, anything positive that comes out of godly sorrow. The, the worldly sorrow results in the opposite, right? It, it results in destruction, right? It, it results in depression. And again, the, the devil can tempt us to turn that godly sorrow into worldly sorrow. Right? So we have to be careful. There's a very uh, nice verse also in the book of Revelation. I don't remember the exact wording of it, but it refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. Right? And it says what, that in the last days, the accuser of the brethren will be cast down, like will be destroyed, the accuser of the brethren. This is what the devil is. The devil is the accuser. Right? And, and you might think that, you know, it, you, you might think that God would be the one making the accusations. Right? Because God is the judge. God is the lawgiver. God is the one that wants us to live up to his standard. So you would imagine that when someone sins, who's going to come and get, make the accusation? It's God. God will accuse. But actually, God is not the accuser. God is the defender. Because he is what? The advocate. Right? God is the advocate. And the devil is the accuser. Because the devil, exactly like what he did with Job, he goes to God and says, see this person, Job? If you take away, you know, um, if you harm this man, if you take away his family, if you take away his possessions, uh, then he will curse you. He is the accuser. He goes to, job, to, to God and he accuses. Okay? And the devil is the one who accuses us. He wants us to always feel accused. He wants us to always feel like no, no amount of repentance is good enough. Nothing that we do is good enough. Always accused. And because I always feel accused, I give up. Because I always feel accused, I feel like there is no hope Right? Because no matter what I do, there's no hope. Because no matter what I do, there's no salvation. Because what I do, no matter what I do, there's no path forward. So the beautiful thing about the godly sorrow is that we, though being sinners, right, though living our entire life as sinners, will still enter into heaven even though we are sinners because of the, of the forgiveness uh, of Christ. Because of the blood that was shed on the cross by Jesus Christ, we will have forgiveness for all these sins because we repent. Repentance is one of the most beautiful things that define the Christian life. Christianity is not about being perfect. Christianity is not about always fulfilling the law and doing everything right. Christianity is about mercy and forgiveness. That God shows us mercy and we show mercy to others. God has showed us mercy, right? He shows us mercy. We have to ask him for his mercy. We have to seek his mercy. We have to, to, to repent of our sins. But God, who is showing mercy, will continue to show mercy to us by his grace all the way to the very end. So when we enter into the paradise, when we enter into heaven, it is not because I can stand before God and say, I am, I am just and I am 
I am without any sin. No, God is the one who covers the sin. God is the one who erases, who removes the sin, not because I am righteous, but because he is righteous. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Look, this is the benefits, the positive things that come from this godly sorrow. This godly sorrow that at the beginning was painful. This godly sorrow that often we don't want to, we don't, we don't want to give it, right? Like, I don't want to tell somebody, hey, you're doing this wrong. Because I'm embarrassed to say that. Because I don't want to lose my friendship. Because I don't want to sound like the person who is judgmental. Because I myself have my own sins. Because whatever reasons, right, that we tend to shy away from wanting to rebuke someone, right? Of course, there's a right way and a wrong way to rebuke. But um, oftentimes, we avoid this topic altogether. I don't, I don't want to rebuke. I don't want to point out a mistake. Not, not out of... Um, mockery, you know, because, because we want the salvation, right? We want to save someone. We want to save someone from destruction. So I go to you and say, hey, friend, right? Um, this way that you're living, this is not pleasing to God. This is leading you in a very dark path, in a very bad path. You need to change. You need to turn around. You need to go the other direction. That's not a popular message. It's not a popular message even among our closest acquaintances, our closest friends, and certainly not a popular message to the world. But this is the message. This is why when, when Christ said that we as the Christians were the salt of the earth, that we are coming to season the world. We are coming to, to do something to the world, not to just stay in our places, not to just stay in our homes and our houses and our churches and just worship God there. We are meant to go and to season the world, to, to convict the world of sin with love, not with messages of condemnation, but with love. And these are the, the benefits for those who actually receive this rebuke, who, who experience this pain of the godly sorrow. He says, what? The clearing of yourselves, meaning I, I wake up. Have you ever experienced this or someone that you're close to who has been kind of living life in a stupor, almost like they're drunk with, with, with some kind of wrong idea, believing that they are living life or making certain decisions that is right, and then suddenly they realize that they have been deceived? that they have been living a life that's been completely false, like that the decisions they were making were leading them completely in the wrong direction and they just couldn't see it before and now suddenly they see it. This is the clearing of yourselves, right? That suddenly I realized that my life, the way that it was going, was leading to self-destruction. And now I see for the first time. I couldn't have experienced this unless I experienced that pain of the godly sorrow, okay? Indignation, indignation against what? Hatred for sin. That I hate sin, right? We always talk about hate the sin and not the person, not the person who's committing the sin, but the sin itself. We have to call it out and say, this is wrong. This sin is wrong. This is what indignation is. I, I, it is the godly anger. It is the righteous anger. It is being angry at the things God is angry about. And I can be angry at sin even though I am a sinner myself. Because I convict myself of sin. Because whatever sin I am angry with in the world, I am also angry within myself. So I am not being judgmental 
I'm saying the standard of God that I want everyone to live with, I also am struggling to live with, right? Indignation. The third is fear. Fear is not like being afraid. Fear is seriousness, right? Seriousness, like I choose to live my life with a sense of seriousness because I don't want to repeat and fall back into the same pattern of life that I was before. Meaning I can't just go back to my normal lifestyle. And that's the thing with the godly sorrow is it's not just a momentary pain. It's a pain that results in a change, a seriousness, a change of pattern, a change of behavior in my life. I have to change who I spend time with. I have to change what I do, what I watch, what I hear, what I see, what I think, what I, something has to change. And it, I have to do it in a serious way. And like when someone is like uh, maybe struggling with alcoholism, right? And there's a certain number of steps that you have to go through in order to overcome the alcoholism. It's a very serious process. And if somebody really wants to do it, says, you know what? I have to go through this process because if I try to do it by myself without help, I will fail. And a lot of times when it comes to sinful activity, we need help. I have a seriousness about, you know, what I need to do now. It's not just a feeling. I don't just feel bad. No, I feel this godly sorrow, which leads me to repentance, which leads me to a change of lifestyle. Then he says, what zeal, right? Zeal for sanctity. Going back to what we said at the very first verse, why are we seeking to be cleansed from purity and defilement and all this? Because it is a response to God's love. When he says, well, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters. And then St. Paul says, therefore, because of these promises that God gives to us, we should live a certain way, right? Because if we want to benefit from the fatherhood of God, if we want to experience the love of the father, if we want to experience his, his love, then we have to be in union with him. And I cannot be in union with him unless I seek to root out sin as much as I can in my life, right? It is those people who seek to root out sin, like, you know, when we're speaking about in the harvest meeting about the desert fathers, right? Who is it that has experienced the greatest love of God? It is those people. It is those people who have sought so genuinely to root out sin in their life, to suit out to root out distraction, to root out the love of anything else in their heart except for God, that truly experience the, what the love of God is, that truly experience what union with God is. So they have this zeal for purity, right? If we have a zeal for purity, we will seek after it. We will desire it and we will go after it. And then finally, vindication, which means being cleared of blame, right? We are vindicated, right? I felt godly sorrow, I repented, and now I am cleared. I am, I am forgiven. I am, I am no longer blamed for the sin. I am vindicated of the sin, right? As though it never even happened, right? And this is, this is why St. Paul is praising. He's saying, even though I regretted it at the time, believing I might have been too harsh on you, but now I do not regret it because I saw the change that it made in you. I saw how you improved. I saw how you changed. I saw who you are today. And I realized that the rebuke I gave you was the proper rebuke because it produced this godly soul. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, so um, in the Gospel of St. John chapter 2, when Christ was in um, cleansing the temple, um, a lot of people come, come to me with this question um, of like, Christ kind of losing himself in a way. Um, so like, how, how do I... And then like, there was this mention of uh, how the disciples were reminded of uh, a verse from the book of Psalms where the zeal of your house has consumed me. And um, so 
how do we like what do we make of i guess christ's reaction um yeah so that's a good question so christ when he takes an action he does not take an action based on an uncontrolled emotion he takes an action based on his will right if he felt in that moment that it was necessary to convey his will in the form of those actions that he took to get the attention of the people, then that's what he did. It is different than if you or I, in a fit of rage and in such anger because of someone doing something they shouldn't do, just walk through the room and, you know, turning over the tables. If a human being does it, we look at them and we say, clearly this person is just in a fit of anger and this is an unreasonable response and they shouldn't do this, right? We never look at a human being do this and say, yeah, that was, that was the right thing, okay? Because of the motivation that a person who does this is, is being motivated by raw emotion without thinking through what it is that they're doing. But when the Lord does an action like this, he doesn't do it for that reason. He does it as this is what is the appropriate action to be done in that moment and, and in order to get the attention of the people. Like, let me give you an example. Like, when God sends fire down from heaven, is he doing that because he's just in a fit of rage and he can't control himself? No, he, he makes a decision. What is going to produce the best result? It is this. Should I destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, I will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Because this is the best action that the people need to see for the sake of holiness, right? So everything that God does is for the sake of our salvation. And he knows what is needed by the people at the time based on the situation. So we shouldn't interpret his actions as though they are human. Let me give you a contrary example. Moses, when he came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, okay, and he had the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and he saw that the, the people were worshiping idols. What did he do? He threw them on the ground and they broke. So now what benefit did that come with? Was there any benefit? Like, like that was an action of sheer just emotion at the moment. God gave him, he was up there for 40 days to receive those tablets and God wrote them with his finger, right? And then the, the moment he comes down, he, he takes them and he just throws them on the ground and destroys them. Like God had to make new tablets. Right? So and he, what I'm trying to say is that like, like a human being, when we take actions like that, it's usually not well thought out, okay? It's usually, I'm in the heat of the anger, I'm in the heat of the moment, and I do something believing it to be righteous but not necessarily the right course of action. But when God does it, God doesn't think like us, you know? So we shouldn't put, we shouldn't look at what he does exactly like one of us doing that thing. Okay? Yeah. But, but no, like I, I think people like us, we may, we can understand this. It's very simple. But to explain it to somebody that barely even sees God as God, um, and has even a hard time of understanding Jesus being God, right? And taking a human form and coming, they could say he was a human, right? So it was anger. I'm just like kind of having a dialogue with those. No, no, I'm not saying there wasn't anger. Yeah, there is anger, but the way that God manifests his anger is different than us. How would you relate that? You know, I mean, uh, it depends on who you're talking to. But I think we should talk about the sanctification of, of, of emotions, okay? Like, what does it mean for our emotions to be sanctified? God created us with emotions, 
completely. Like emotions were not a bad thing that happened after the fall. We were created with emotions from the beginning. And our emotions were intended to be a support for us. I mean, think about yourself today. Think about how easy it is to pray, to read the Bible, to do any good work when you are emotionally 100% invested in that activity. It's like, it's like easy, you know? Like when you feel zeal about something, you do it and you don't, you don't feel tired. You don't feel like you're doing it just out of a duty. You're doing it completely like with a desire, full desire, right? And if our emotions were always sanctified, meaning that our emotions were always aligned with what was right to be done, with what was good to be done, with what was reasonable to be done, then everything in our life would be so much easier. You know, I would wake up in the morning completely motivated for the day because I knew that that day I had productive things that I had to do and that I felt emotionally invested in those things. Whenever I came time to pray, I would love to pray for hours because emotionally I was into it. But sadly, our emotions have been corrupted, right? So now our emotions, they actually, not always, I mean, there are times where emotions are supporting us, but oftentimes our emotions are actually acting against us. So that when it's time to pray, even though my mind is telling me, yes, I should pray, my emotions are saying, no, don't do it. So we're, we have the opposite of zeal, you know? So we are fighting against what is right. So in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the example of the sanctified emotions with the sanctified actions together, okay? So, so but he is expressing himself as a human, right? The whole point of the incarnation was so that he would express himself as a human being for us to be able to see him, to hear him, to touch him. And he is a human being. But, but he, he, he allowed himself to be seen as one of us, to communicate with us in a more natural way that we can understand, okay? So, so by, by being in our midst and by making a decision like that, like he would say, what is, how can I communicate to this group of people that I am dissatisfied very dissatisfied with buying and selling in the temple. The Lord could have could Sarah just said, like, I'm, I'm unhappy with buying and selling in the temple. Yes, he could have done that. And there were many times where what he did is he preached. And he said, you know, he spoke the truth through preaching. But in that moment, he felt it was necessary to make a bigger statement that would get more attention to the people. So he decided to make like a, a bigger scene about it. Okay. And to stop it immediately. Right? And to demonstrate his authority as the God, because this is his house, saying, this is my house, and you have made it a den of robbers, so I am going to put an end to it immediately and demonstrate his authority over it. I can't, I can't say, because obviously I, I'm not God, why he chose to use that way in this versus you know another way in another, but I guess the, the emphasis I would make is that God's emotionals, emotions, or if you want to call them emotions, are, are sanctified. He doesn't, he doesn't act flippantly like we act. He doesn't act out of impulse like he acts, like, like, like we act. But he expresses himself in a way we can understand. So when the Bible says that God was angry, what does that mean? We become angry when something unexpected happens that we don't like. But to God, nothing unexpected happens. Everything is expected. Like there, there's no such, there's nothing that God doesn't already know has happened. Like if you knew absolutely everything that was going to happen, we wouldn't feel anger in the way that we feel. Like anger is usually associated with something unexpected, right? 
So how is it that God would experience anger in the same way that we do? It's not the same, but it is a term that's like personifies him in a way that we can understand that he is displeased with something. Something is against his will. I'll take one of the questions. So, okay. um, so the, the brother does say God was angry, right? Well, we, but would there then be a difference between anger and wrath? Because wrath we perceive as a deadly sin, right? I, I understand going back to his actions so, or things. Even when we talk about the deadly sins, right? When we say wrath, is it wrong for us to be angry? Is it wrong for a human being to be angry? It's not wrong for us to be angry. I can be angry. Actually, it's when we speak about wrath, we speak about the the the, the wrong uh, expressions of anger. So, for instance, if I become angry and because of that I insult you, or I yell at you, or I'm aggressive to you, I'm violent toward you, um, all of those are wrong expressions of anger. But the fact that I am angry in and of itself is not a sin, right? So. Again, God created us with emotion, and God sanctified our emotions so that from the beginning, God wanted us to use our emotions for good. Let me give you an example. If you saw a child being beaten, are you just going to, you're not going to feel any anger? We would feel anger. Like, this is unrighteous. This is wrong. What's to be happening? And because of my anger, I should take the appropriate action of stopping this behavior. Right? But if we didn't feel any anger at all, then we wouldn't feel any indignation about any sin that's committed in the world. Like there would be no prisons, you know, like like there would be no reason to detain anyone, there'd be no reason to give consequences to anyone because I just I don't feel like anything deserves, you know, punishment or consequence or anything. So anger in itself is a holy, and God made us to have it. It is the way that we have twisted it, unfortunately, into using it instead of. Instead of acting based on righteous anger, we have we have we now primarily act based on selfish anger. Meaning, I get angry because you hurt me, because you insulted me, because you didn't give me what I deserve, because of this and this. And so it's become self-focused instead of outward focused. Anger could be a tool for showing love, right? In order to protect someone who is being harmed, right? But most of the time, as we know, usually when we get angry. It tends not to be for something like that, but it's because somebody cut me off in traffic. It's because someone didn't give me the honor that I believed I should have had. It's because I didn't get the promotion that I should have had. It's because someone looked at me funny. It's, you know, those are the things that create anger, and that's not the sanctified anger. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O God, for every opportunity that you allow us to come to your church, to study your word, and to hear the insights of your apostles that have written to us about you, and about how is it that we should worship you, and how is it that we should serve you, and how is it that they served you, O Lord, many years ago. We thank you, O God, because you have made us to be your sons and daughters, and that you have declared yourself to be our Father. We thank you, Lord, because you show us your love day after day after day until the very end of our life. We ask, O oh God, that you allow us to 
wake up from sleeplessness and the stupor of our lives or the distraction of our lives to see and experience your love, to not be distracted, O oh Lord, by the daily activities of this life, to not be distracted or deceived by the empty philosophies and the deceptions of this world and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. We ask, O oh God, that you allow us to see you calling us, and that we would turn away from sin and a desire to be in union with you. Thank you, O oh Lord, for every good thing. Thank you for every experience you allow us to experience that is for our good. Teach us, O oh Lord, your ways. Teach us to draw closer to you. Teach us how to serve you and teach us to experience your love each and every moment. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen.